Hi, welcome to the Lubber's Hole. You're with Mike. And Ian. As we're reading through Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron novels. If you're a first-time reader, welcome. If you're on another circumnavigation, we're glad to have you. Ian, can you catch us up a little bit with uh, where we left off last time and where we're going this week? I'd love to. So just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. (laughs) Jack and Stephen and the crew of the Leopard, having made it all the way from Desolation Island, had that great cricket game on the way home in the East Indies. The officers and the midshipmen and a few hands from the Leopard headed for England aboard La Fleche. Um, We followed a great Scottish surgeon, Mr. McLean. We met young midshipmen foreshore and we encountered the troubled Lieutenant Warner. And just as we hit golden sailing days with all of this crew aboard the La Flèche, terrible accident took place and the ship burst into flames. Now, a quick digression here, Mike. I want, I want to do a stop press, if that's okay. We talked about cricket. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we talked about how Stephen misunderstood the nature of cricket and brought his hurling game <laughs> to a match of cricket with kind of catastrophic results. But it, it's funny to report on the same day that we recorded that, the English national cricket team played a one-day match against the Irish cricket team and got beat. So first of all, well done, the Irish guys. Second of all, I looked up the connection between cricket and hurling. I literally Googled cricket GAA for Gaelic Athletic Association. And guess what? There's an article on an Irish newspaper talking about how England cricketers are turning to learning the skills of hurling as a way to strengthen their cricket game. So... There you go. We'll tweet that link out and we can all talk about that. Matron is Notre Dame. <laughs> or a cricket coach. So he will take that. That's right. There you go. So, Was a Notre Dame a cricket coach? Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure. I think he might. Yeah, for Sri Lanka at some point, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just the one day side, not the test side. Yeah. All right. Now, what do we have to look forward to this week? Well, this week, Mike, we've got life aboard a lifeboat. We've got. Another Santa Claus moment, a Christmas surprise for the crew. We've got the beginnings of the War of 1812, and we're going to learn how Jack survives in the midst of a lunatic asylum on a diet of baked beans and cod. So without giving too much away, I wonder if you can guess where we're headed. Anyhow, alongside all of this, we're going to hear about the return of Louisa Wogan And I think Stephen is going to be back in the world of intelligence. Ah, nice. Well, as you mentioned, when last we left our heroes, everybody was over the side into these lifeboats. Uh, and O'Brien you know, writes this so beautifully. The blue cutter was 18 feet long, and with 13 men in the boat, it was uncomfortably crowded, dangerously low in the water. They were silent and for the most part motionless, squeezed into what little shade they could find, precious little, under the high tropical sun, but more now that it was fast declining from its height well down in the western sky ahead. A sensible relief for the blaze directly overhead at noon might have been called intolerable, but for the fact that they had borne it. They had a good deal to bear apart from the heat and the overcrowding, fear, hunger, thirst, and sunburn, and of these, sunburn was the most immediate. Wow. So they're pretty hard up against it here, aren't they? The writing's really bringing us into this world of real imminent disaster. I mean, they're in a disaster already, but 
you look around the horizon and you can't see very many signs of hope for, for Jack and the crew. They had to give up their shirts to make a sale because the purser of La Flèche had stolen and sold off the cutter sails. Um, they've passed around their jackets to keep people on the sunny side out of the sun, but they're all getting these really terrible deep sunburns. A gust of wind, a, a, a storm had separated the ships. So Jack and his 10 men from the Leopard and the three of the La Flèche men are just there alone on the sea. They've got a little bit of biscuit left. They've got the leather in their belts and their shoes to kind of wrench a little bit more uh, nourishment out of. And the doctor is really eking out their water supply. And you can tell how low they are from the fact that they're diluting the water with seawater and urine to make it last. Oh. By the way, this is a real thing. It's even been said in certain corners of the internet that drinking urine is good for you. And I'm absolutely sure it's not it's drinking urine is less unhealthy for you in the short term than drinking seawater because the human body can only make urine that is less salty than salt water but Mm. yeah but salt isn't the only impurity in urine so i think that they've only got a couple of days before the first either the dehydration or kidney failure takes them and i know that in a in a moment or two we're going to hear about a rainstorm between the dehydration and the seawater and the urine and then binging on rainwater i think any modern physician is going to give them a really close kidney function workup if they ever get rescued if they ever get into medical help Ooh. you know right at the beginning of desolation island you know pullings and aubrey were talking about captain bly and all the time he spent in an open boat so Once again, a little bit of masterful Patrick O'Brien foreshadowing here. Oh, definitely. And to to reinforce just how desolate it is, we get this account of the little amount of their personal possessions that they had all grabbed. I think the lieutenants grabbed their commissions. Uh, Stephen had grabbed his diary and some private papers. Neither of them grabbed their instruments. So Jack's violin and Stephen's cello have perished in the fire aboard La Flèche, and we don't even hear mention of it. Yeah. And you kind of wonder, again, how are they going to survive without their instruments? That's always where we turn to when things get most dire. That's right. There's no emotional outlet. Right. So they, and they spot a sail. I think it was an Indiaman. And they use precious resources of their remaining levels of energy to try and get close enough. And they shout and they fire Jack's pistol and they all call out together. And there's this real heart sink as the Indiaman sails on and they've been left. They were never seen. They were never heard. And I love the way Jack tries to rally the men. It's the, uh, probably the most desperately low he's been. He's scraping the bottomest bottom of his barrel of resources of confidence and encouragement. And he says, do not be downhearted, shipmates. She's carrying a top light. That proves we're in the track of shipping. And now I shall serve out supper and shape course for land. And I will lay any man 10 guineas to a shilling that we will see a ship. I will not take you, sir said Babington, as loud as his racked voice could speak. It is a certainty. Yeah. God bless Babington. Yeah, as these guys are on their last legs and he's standing by his captain. Yeah. I just I just love that. Yeah. Well, speaking of that captain, in, in the morning, they're you know, sleeping cramped up together there. Stephen wakes up. He's got hunger cramps. And he sees Jack and he says, like the rock of Gibraltar. There's Jack at the tiller, acting completely unmoved by all of it. But Stephen notes that Jack has now lost as much weight as a man can and still live. But Jack, hardly able to speak, points to a darkened sky ahead and says something like soon. And sure enough, 
They come into a drenching rain and this shower of flying squids. Uh, so they're drinking, they're capturing water, they're eating every squid they can get hold of, but it, it, and they don't even have to fight for these. There's so many of them. And it postpones what uh, had appeared to be their imminent demise there. And isn't it great that it's a squid? You know, <laughs> Stephen, having worked so hard to preserve a giant squid, what does the heaven send him now? The heaven send him <laughs> flying squids. Not, not flying fish, not frogs, not hailstones. He gets squid. <laughs> Calamari. This has got to be a good omen, right? <laughs> and even the squid, you know, doesn't leave them comfortable. I like this description that Stephen woke in the morning and found that he was cold and his belly was filled like a sack, heavy as if it were a foreign body. And there's Forshaw, this young midshipman, there to comfort him. Here's my jacket, says Forshaw, stretch out on the thwart. It will be dawn in an hour or two and we can hold out another week at last. You will be all right. God, this this beautiful boy and his kindness to the doctor. Yeah. Ah, and Yeah, maybe Forshaw's there carrying the emotional tones in the story when Jack and Stephen don't have their instruments. Yeah. I don't think one substitutes the other, but it's nice to have Forshaw's character there to carry so much of the emotional part yeah. of the story. Yeah, well put. Well, sure enough, in the dawn, there's not one but two ships to leeward about two miles away and a fair wind that holds... And they're running down and, and are pretty sure to catch her. But, uh, you know, O'Brien writes that yet no man dared tempt fate. They sat rigid, staring with all their force across the sea, willing the boat on. Total silence until Jack handed the tiller to Babington, crept stiffly forward with his glass and almost instantly said, ours, Blue Ensign, Java by God. Yes, Java. I should have known her anywhere. And the others are Portuguese. Oh. <sighs> well, to, to hark back to something we said in the last episode, there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Java, it's funny, there are so many parallels with Java and other commands of Jack. Um, the Java is a frigate. The Java is carrying a diplomatic mission to Bombay, <laughs> where Stephen and Jack have been before with, with diplomatic folks on board. And Captain Lambert seems to be sort of a peer at the you know, same level, same career stage as Jack. So Jack is able to stand up and maintain his dignity as all his crews brought aboard. He politely introduces his officers, bows to the governor and steers his way. It says half blind to the quarter gallery. And there he fell. The fall very nearly came before the pride, he said to himself as he lay half lying, half reclined. And even this close to death, Jack hangs on to <laughs> hangs on to his mirth and his sense of humor. He also hangs on to his sense of smell because he smells mince pies and realizes in a callback way back to Desolation Island that they've been saved once again just before Christmas Day. Wow. So, you know, a whole year has gone by since they were you know, patching the leak on the leopard, finally getting things under control. And here we are a year later getting picked up out of the ocean by Lambert and his crew on the Java. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's so providential. We get grim, 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 survival, survival, survival. <gasps> and there's rescue. Yeah. It reminds me a bit. There's a, there's a passage in another book about the sea, a book called The Cruel Sea by Nicholas Montserrat, written in the 1950s, which became a very famous kind of British Ealing Studios type stiff upper lip movie in 1953 and the crew of this destroyer hms compass rose are um afloat in life rafts among the wreckage of their ship 
And it says, all around them on the oily fouled surface, the wretched flotsam, all that was left of Compass Rose, hurt and shamed the eye. And Lockhart, I think, was the first lieutenant. The picture of the year, thought Lockhart, mourning with corpses. And so the viperous found them. It's funny, I, I remember very clearly that, that chapter and that description in the book, and it was brought right back to me by this description of the rescue of the leopards. And if you're interested, the uh, Cruelty is a great book. The film is a period piece, but it's also great. And it has quite a lot of similarities, I think, with Greyhound, which is the recently released Tom Hanks movie, also about the Atlantic convoys. Nice. On this ship, there's barely any room aboard because, as you mentioned, they're on this mission to Bombay and they've got the governor of Bombay. They've got all of the governor's retinue. And and they notice, though, that even though there's there's that smell of mince pie, there seems to be no Christmas spirit on board. And Stephen, who was having a big problem with the, the gun room in La Flesh, has a little commentary on this gun room. And you want to you give us Stephen's thoughts as only Stephen can. <laughs> so he was writing in his diary and said that he'd only exchanged the boredom of La Flesh for a greater boredom still, because it was still all about the Navy of the United States. You know, we talked in the last episode about the Royal Naval people aboard this ship as sports bores in mid-season. Well, the same thing's going on here, only more so now that there's been this defeat. Oh, for women at sea, writes Maturin, who's just wearing his lubberly ignorance with pride, I think, here. Oh, for women at sea to obviate the eternal crosscut harpings, to do away with the grumbling futtocks, and to inject a little civilization, even of an equivocal nature, even at the risk of moral deviation. Oh, yeah. So Stephen's at, his, uh, at the end of his rope, I think, with all of this chat about Navy and who's got the more guns. The crew seems down, and even our dear Forshaw is without a smile. And, and you know, Stephen notices him, and it looks as if he's been crying and, and wants to speak to the captain when the captain gets a chance. Stephen goes to see Jack, and Jack is also very low, completely glum. Stephen asks if he's had bad news, and Jack brings him up to date on the situation. What's what's that situation? So the there's been a, another series of defeats. The Guerriere, a 38-gun frigate, met the USS Constitution, a 44, some would say heavier frigate, brought her to action and was beat. So the Guerriere, British frigate, beaten, dismasted, taken and burnt. Then the American sloop Wasp of only 18 guns tackled our similarly sized brig Frolic, same weight of metal, and took her too. And then the United States, another one of these recently built heavy American frigates, encountered the Macedonian, another 38-gun frigate, fought off the Azores, and the Macedonian struck to the Americans. So two English frigates, British frigates, and a sloop have struck to the Americans. And Jack's really at a low ebb here. And the diary entry from Stephen says that he doesn't believe he's ever seen Jack so moved. If he had heard of Sophie's death, he would no doubt have felt an even keener, even crueler emotion, but it would have been a personal grief, whereas this is beyond self, except insofar as he is entirely identified with the Royal Navy. Wow. And Stephen kind of logically sees that heavier American technology and guns might have been part of the victory here. He sees that their ships are manned by volunteers and isn't part of the general belief that the Navy must always win. He has a moment of kind of confessing to himself. He says, I feel no hint of animosity against the Americans, except insofar as their actions may to some degree help Bonaparte. Yet it would do my heart, as I term the illogical area of my being, it would do my heart good 
to hear of some compensating victory. And Mike, we know that this disparity between British and American frigates is part of the real historical record. It's much talked about among people who study the history of the navies in the age of sail. It's certainly true that British frigate captains were very enterprising and the British crews were in general, although not uniformly, they were generally well-prepared, well-trained and well-equipped and regarded themselves as committed and ready and, and brave. The Americans had similarly skilled and prepared and committed seamen, maybe more so since they had access to a pool of volunteers to to man their relatively small number of ships. Mm. And American frigates had hulls planked with this timber called Southern Live Oak. Um, It was resistant to salt water. It was incredibly strong. And if we go back to the movie Master and Commander, some of this superiority of modern heavy frigates found its way into the movie, albeit a little bit wrongly described and albeit ascribed to a French ship, the Acheron, which despite that we learn was built in Boston. So there's something going on here about technology beginning to turn the tide in warfare. And the Americans, for a while, in this particular theater of war, in this particular aspect of naval warfare, the American technology has got the edge over British command of the seas in general and British pluck and conduct and skill and good seamanship. Yeah, yeah. Now, when that argument has come up a little bit earlier in the book, you know, Jack always said, no, no, it's, you know, who's who's manning the cannons? How quickly can they be fired? How well are they pointed? But Jack is a little sad to see that that Lambert, though he's a fighting captain, doesn't really have the personnel to do that right now. He's been given this, this big, yeah. expensive ship. Lambert doesn't have a lot of personal means, so he can't buy the extra powder. He's under those grueling rules about how much powder you're allowed to use, which is virtually next to none. He's got a very raw crew. Jack describes them as mostly landsmen and assorted vermin. And he really hasn't had the time, in addition to the money, or the weather to exercise his great guns. Jack's really amazed that Lambert was able to take a prize, the William, an American merchantman, so far on his journey. And they're now on the way to meet the William and transfer Jack and his men aboard that ship to say, so they'll be dropped off in Brazil to head back home while the Java, yeah. the Java continues on to India. Now, the good news is when they do meet with the William, the Leopards have got some of their best gun captains on the prize crew there. And so they're they're quite pleased to be picking them back up as well. That'll put them back in a little bit better shape. And they may need that because right as this is happening, a sail is spotted on the offering. Bonin jumps up the rigging. And in his opinion, it's the USS Constitution. So here's an action in classic Patrick O'Brien mode, Mike. This is a single enemy heaves over the horizon and is spotted by the lookout and single ship-to-ship action is going to be joined. Although it's in an odd place in the book. Well, not odd. It's in an unusual place in the book. It's not coming in the first few chapters to set up a lot of the rest of the story. It's not coming at the end to be the kind of playing out moment. It's halfway through. It's the moment in the story when we're going to pivot from being in one world to being in another world. So here's this frigate on frigate action. Yeah. Lambert very politely, very decently says, while the William is still within touch, uh, I can send the William into San Salvador and the leopards can can go ashore and leave us to take care of this. And Jack goes, no, no, no. Um, I think I speak for all of us when I say we'd be desperately disappointed to be put out of the ship. And all the other crew members are there backing him up. 
So Lambert chuckles, gives order to wear ship and bear down on the Constitution and has no hesitation at all about committing to the action. Yeah. You know, they're excited about being on board. They're excited about going into action. Everybody is ready to pay back the Americans here. Jack even asked their first lieutenant, Chad, to give his crew, let him and the Leopards work yeah. a pair of guns together. And and Chad, who's a short on experienced gunner, is pretty happy to comply. And Jack and Chad are saying, they're talking through what's going to happen. And Jack's saying, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Captain Lambert's going to maneuver to cross her wake, hang up on her starboard quarter. And, and so we'll get in there and get that larboard gun off first. And Chad says, well, no, you know, I was talking to the captain a few minutes ago. And, you know, he quoted Lord Nelson, never mind maneuvers, go straight at him. So that's what they plan to do. And I think Jack's scratching his head just a little bit, wondering, yeah. really, we're just going to go straight at him and go yard arm to yard arm with this weight of metal difference? Now, Jack, who would never contradict Lord Nelson, and he certainly would never criticize the Java's captain. It's not his. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he knows that Lambert's got some experience, but he thinks to himself that if he was commanding a ship that was moving faster through the water than the chase, he would have maneuvered. He would have used those long guns with the enemy, probed him, hit him on the quarter, and raked him, taking advantage of the leeward attack with the breeze laying that enemy ship with a porch low to the water, maybe even smothering his fire. So we've got this idea that this action's not a foregone conclusion. Jack's already expressing some doubts about the tactics that Lambert and Chad's are going to put into practice. Jack's practicing the motions with the leopard crew members who are there manning guns. And for sure, the midshipman has darted below to report that the chase has worn, has shown a flag, and Java's about to do the same. And he's really gleeful. His, his, his voice went so high that it almost vanished. He looked so frail, so very childish in his oversized borrowed clothes that the older man looked at him quite pitifully. And Jack thought... How I hope that boy don't stop a ball. We, oh, Jack. We don't like this when O'Brien writes lines like that, especially not a foreshaw, our, our young and innocent here. And then Lambert reports to Jack the same thing that Chad has just said. He says, my intention is to go the plain, straightforward way to bear down, hit her as hard as we can and board her in the smoke. And Jack's got this slightly equivocal response he says, we've got plenty of willing hands with all of our supernumeraries. I think they will make a better fist of it with the cutlass than playing long bowls with the guns. And I think, Mike, he's trying to find his way into agreeing and supporting Lambert and letting him get on with what he's planning to do. Right, right. Well, as this thing progresses, the Constitution doesn't engage right away. And in fact, they continue to draw the Java away from the land and away from the William. So it's going to be, a, as you say, just a one ship on ship here. And Java is coming at her, hopes to board her quickly. But the American starts to fire from half a mile out. And the shots are skipping, but they're hitting. They're, you know, they, they are lining them right up. And, and we see Forshaw again darting out, coming back with a ball, a 24-pounder. And we get reminded that these are big balls. These aren't the Java's 18-pounders here. And right. we see Forshaw trying to you know, kind of walk away with that. And they start to fire. 
The Constitution's firing with a broadside every 120 seconds, which is pretty good. And it says, yet as they peered into the dense cloud of American smoke to point their loaded guns, the sail trimmers were called. The Constitution, having fired, had instantly filled her headsails and put before the wind she had worn. And the Java, without waiting to catch her and rake her on the turn, was wearing after her. The starboard guns no longer bore. And the leopards exchanged a glance. Lambert had missed a golden chance, Jack reflects, but hopefully there will be another. Uh. Now, Mike, th- this is really fascinating. Not only is it a, an, a, an unusual and slightly new perspective on the action, and we get this foreboding sense of worry as Jack has his doubts about the tactics. This is a real action, like they so often are, almost always are. So the Java, the Constitution, Captain Lambert, Lieutenant Chads, the American captain or other Commodore Bainbridge were all real ships and the real protagonists in this real action. I think that in the real action, it was the Constitution that initially missed an opportunity to rake the Java rather than the other way around. But either way, it was a cat and mouse sort of an action, and the course of the action and the outcome were the same. Wow. So this is fascinating for us because it's got this tension. It's fascinating because we're seeing a different captain with slightly different resources and a different mindset in Lambert making choices differently than Jack would have made. Right. And maybe also with a differently organized and differently motivated crew. I I don't think they're disastrously bad. They're just different. And we're going to see now how that difference is going to play out. Yeah. And speaking of different, you know, it's it's fascinating to think here we've got this O'Brien book, Jack on the Seas. And with the exception of the first couple paragraphs, Jack is not captaining a vessel at all. He's not captained a vessel at all in this thing. And- Spoiler, he's not likely to. No, so he's going to spend the whole book with the rank of captain, but no ship. Right, right. On lots of ships, none of them his. So, back into the action. The the Constitution has hit the Java hard. Three of the Java's guns have been knocked out, and the inexperience in the crew is starting to show, and Jack turns to help the other gun teams. The Constitution turns, she wears again, and Lambert sees the opportunity, but his gun crews weren't savvy enough to get to the other side of the ship, and Jack is simultaneously knocked down when a musket ball grazes his head. And he gets them to the other side, but he realizes they hadn't reloaded them. They didn't have their smarts and the foresight to be ready to fight both sides. And there's this aching moment of missed opportunity. When the turn continues, it says, the Constitution's tall, unprotected, naked, infinitely vulnerable stern was right before the Java's broadside. The Java so beautifully steered that her main yard arm crossed the Constitution's taffrail, but only a single gun went off. Oh, Oh, gosh. This could be the turning point. Yeah. And it really is punctuated right away because... You know, the Constitution wears again. Lambert tries his exact same maneuver. And you hear Babington saying, I have no notion of all this wearing. Jack says, he may do it once too often. The most dangerous moment I have is, and Babington breaks in and says, oh, we're going to miss stays. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it looks like they're not going to turn. They're not going to turn. And uh, the enemy is right there. And in another minute, the Java's going to be breaked. So mess turning, constitution right there. Jack hollers at everybody to lie down, presses on Forshaw's shoulder. The broadside comes in, and the Java's stern is just torn the whole length of her deck. Uh, And then she slowly, slowly begins to pay off and goes round. And at this point, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm having a real... 
go at my nails going, what's going to happen yeah. here? <laughs> so the ships continue to pound one another and the difference between those 24 pounders and those 18 pounders, as you mentioned, Mike, is really going to start to tell. So this was the moment when they could have boarded maybe because mm. um, otherwise all is lost and they were about to board when Java suffers a taste of what befell the Vaxamite. <laughs> Java's foremast comes down and that means that they lose all control. The Constitution can come round and it rakes the Java from behind once again, killing men, bringing down the main top mast. So we've got one and a half masts left. More sails, more rigging follow, including injuries to the mizzen, which means all three masts are injured somehow. Captain Lambert goes down. And this is all pretty much as it happened in the real action. Ah. Um, Jack was wounded by a marksman, lost the use of his right arm. So he's had a musket ball grazed to his head. He's had a, 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 a an injury to his right arm from a musket ball. And he gets Stephen to splint it, telling him, you can take it off later. You know, you can amputate it. Right. Ah. And Chad's the first lieutenant's in command. So Chad now is in command of the Java. He's trying to clear the wreckage. He's trying to make another attempt at boarding. And Jack calls for Forshaw to ask Chad for permission to remove the mainsail and learns that Forshaw's been blasted over the side. And here we have, you know, the death of another innocent, another beautiful person, another someone who loved the doctor here. And I I noticed, you know, this actually... At the time we're recording this, just yesterday, there was this big discussion on the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society Facebook page about Dill. You know, so so in the yeah. August fourth, fifth time frame, this discussion about Dill and what to make of her death and everything. And so here is another one that just uh, I'm, I'm reading this discussion. I'm reading about Forshaw here, and uh, it really it really is hard. You talked a lot about the death yeah. of innocent recently. Yeah. Uh, we did eat yeah. by surprise again. Yeah, we did. And we talked also about how important deaths often don't happen before our point of view. They take place, as it were, away from the action that's reported. They're reported afterwards. Yeah, this one yeah. definitely following exactly that same thing. So we've lost foreshore. There's been damage and death everywhere aboard ship. We've got injuries already to Jack Aubrey, and they're starting to rig a jury mast. But their option of boarding is now passed because the Constitution won't let them get close enough. And we get an idea that there's still this idea of some personal chivalry in ship-to-ship actions because it says here, deliberately and under perfect control, she, the Constitution, crossed the Java's bows at rather more than 200 yards, shivered her main and mizzen topsails and lay there gently rocking her whole almost undamaged larboard broadside looking straight at the dismastered Java, ready to rake her again and again. With her single sail right forward, the Java could not move into the wind, could no longer approach the Constitution. All she could do was to make a slow starboard turn to bring her seven port guns to bear. In any case, the Constitution would not wait until they bore, but she would fill again and circle her. And the Constitution lay there, with evident forbearance, she did not open fire. And Mike, we get this personal connection again between one captain and another. He says, Jack could see her captain looking earnestly at them from his quarterdeck. No, said Chads in a dead voice. It will not do. He looked at Jack, who bowed his head, then walked aft as a resolute man might walk to the gallows, walked between the sparse gun crews, silent now, 
and hold the colors down. Another defeat. That's a low point. It is a low point. And almost as those colors come down, it's as if the curtain is coming down on act one, I think. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, that probably means it's time for an ice cream and a gin and tonic. (laughs) What do you think, Mike? That's right. Yep. We'll leave our programs to keep our seats intact and, and head out for just a moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're with The Lover's Hole, and you've had your intermission, and now we're going to find out what's going to happen as the crew of the Leopard are taken aboard the USS Constitution. Here they are aboard the Constitution as prisoners. And again, as we've seen you know, in earlier books with the French, they're actually very well cared for here. Stephen meets and grows to esteem their surgeon, Mr. Evans, And and I love O'Brien's description of Evans, a bold death operator with a firm mind, a man whose sole aim was to preserve (laughs) life and limb and who fought very hard to do so with great skill, learning and devotion, a man who made no difference between his own people and the prisoners and one of the few surgeons he had known that Stephen had known who considered the whole man, not only the wound itself. Yeah. So Stephen's found a bit of a kindred spirit. Yeah. And I think that Jack's not really in a position yet (laughs) to identify any kindred spirits. They thought that they would save Captain Lambert, but lose Jack. But in fact, the opposite happened. And Jack is saved from high fever and gangrene, but Captain Lambert passes away. And Stephen makes the observation that uh, this is to do with the misery of the loss of a frigate. And he says that if Jack had lost the vessel, he would have died. And also notes there's this change in Jack's personality. He says Jack switches between very unnaturally humble and apologetic and being cold and arrogant, not his old, open and friendly self. And Stephen sees this, I think, as Jack putting on a bit of a show for his captors and a bit of a bravado and also reacting to the pervasive cheerfulness of the Americans who scored yet another great victory and who have a bunch of British sailors aboard as evidence of their success. And Stephen's token for just how low Jack has sunk is in his appearance. He writes in his diary, now I know what Jack Aubrey will look like when he's 65. Ooh, gosh. I I can't even imagine what it would be like to be an optimistic, pervasively cheerful, open guy (laughs) and get old and crabby at past 65. I wonder what that's like. Oh, dear me. (laughs) Well, let's hope it's not so for Jack. Let's hope we can bring him back here. Here. The Americans are certainly doing their part. You know, they're treating everyone very well. They, you know, they don't loot anything. They return all their belongings. And Stephen has uh, a bit of anxiety. He worries about his diary, which he had saved. And he realizes that if you're an intelligence agent, the one thing you don't want is is this thing where you've written everything down, especially when most of it's written in code. It's kind of obvious. Yeah. You know, you don't want anything that ever has to be explained. Everything should sort of speak for itself. But he he loves his diary. He has encoded so much of it, not just the secret agent's parts, but the parts about himself that he would never want to have exposed to somebody else. You know, he says he should, you know, be unwilling that any other eye should see him naked, see him exposed as a helpless, tormented lover, a nympholet, furiously longing for what was beyond his reach. So, 
you know, he thinks of his indulgences, laudanum and his journal as, as two real dangers. He's tempted to throw it overboard like the officers do their secret papers, but he knows that yeah. for him, this portable, infallible, artificial memory is, is priceless. Now, he is questioned about it. The captain and the, the captain and the lieutenant and a, a civilian are there. And, you know, they're saying, you know, I, I noticed some of this is in code. And he tells the captain, well, you know, I'm a natural philosopher and I want to keep my new discoveries hidden. You know, you wouldn't want to share your capture of a ship with somebody else. And the captain's like, yeah, I get that. And then we've got the surgeon is, is there as well. And Stephen also says, well, I've got all these notes about my patients and I've got to keep their treatments and their conditions confidential. And, and Evan says, well, you know, you're right. That's part of the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. But there's this American civilian. We don't know who he is, but Stephen is concerned about him because the civilian is not buying it. The civilian is not thinking about this. And Stephen becomes concerned about this civilian and these other two Frenchmen who are traveling aboard the Constitution, one Ponte Canet, who Stephen keeps saying, you know, he believes he's seen this guy before. And this guy is spending a lot of time with this unnamed, you know, kind of secretive American civilian here. Ponte Canet, who Stephen thinks he has seen before, and I believe we're going to see again. Yeah, 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 yeah. We will, we will see him again. You're right. And I like this line, Mike, that he gives about uh, saying, "Oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I haven't met him before. There were, after all, innumerable tall, vain Frenchmen who dyed their hair and spoke with a strong Burgundian accent, <laughs> which is very tongue-in-cheek." Classic Stephen, there. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But I think Stephen's intelligence sensors have been switched back on now. You know, he's already managed to exploit his uh, fellow feeling with Evans to get Evans on side, understanding his explanations for the diary and so on. And very smoothly, he starts to position himself with the Americans as a bit of a friend to republicanism, a bit of a friend to America, just as he did with Wogan and Herapath. And it's really great to see that this skill of his is going to help them for quite a bit of the rest of the book, I think. Yeah, Stephen being Stephen, Stephen being the consummate intelligence agent that yeah. he is. Stephen is, of course, always looking for birds. And he talks about this skimmer yeah. bird that he desperately wants to see. And, and, and like the albatrosses before, the whole crew is given orders that if anybody spots a skimmer, you need to let Stephen know. And as you said, he's, he's positioning himself as kind of sympathetic to the American cause, as a Republican. But he has this one interesting conversation with Mr. Evans. And while positioning himself as someone who would have supported their republic and, and you know cheered the taking of the Bastille, he says, but with age, I have come to think that after all, a monarchy is best. Evans says, but when you look around the world and you view the monarchs in it, I do not refer to your own, of course, can you really maintain that the hereditary king cuts a very shining figure. Stephen says, I cannot, nor is that to the point. The person, unless he be extraordinarily good or extraordinarily bad, is of no importance. It's the living, moving, procreating, sometimes speaking symbol that counts. And yeah. he says, but surely mere birth without any necessary merit is illogical. Certainly. And that is its great merit, says Stephen. Man is a deeply illogical being and must be ruled illogically. 
whatever that frigid prig Bentham has said. <laughs> there are n- innumerable motives that have nothing to do with utility. In good utilitarian logic, a man does not sell his goods to go crusading, nor does he build cathedrals. Still less does he write verse. So it you know, it sounds like Stephen is making this fascinating argument for people being illogically and being ruled illogically in order to bring out our greatest parts. What do you think, Ian? It's fascinating this development of First of all, the idea of nationhood, which he'd been debating with James Dillon way back in the first book in Master and Commander. And we've heard Stephen all along expressing the philosophy of enlightenment, you know, of rationality and detached observation. But I I like the fact that O'Brien is giving Stephen the chance to move the philosophy onto a more nuanced position. And he's crediting the reader with having the capacity to follow this more nuanced position. So we're not going all the way into romanticism and revolutionary philosophy, but we are saying that rationality is one thing and governing people is another. So it's really, really great that we hear this sort of evolution of Stephen, evolution of the audience. I think it's great that we hear what is probably a late 20th century Patrick O'Brien era point of view placed very sympathetically in the mouth of an 18th century man, which is what Stephen is really. And I think it's also great that this is the right moment in Stephen's character arc for him to think, to be thinking about how emotion and irrationality governs behavior, because this is what justifies his own ongoing romantic pursuit of Diana, which we're going to hear about some more later. Ah, well put. Now there is one moment in this conversation where they bring up the priest King whose merit is irrelevant, whose place cannot be disputed nor made the subject of a recurring vote. I have to admit that it did run a little chill through my through my veins. <laughs> so, sounded, sounded just a little too familiar at the moment, but let's move on from there. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So th- this, this line about man is illogical and must be ruled illogically, that seems to ring a bit true as well, Mike. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, it's it's funny... We did a comparison to Star Trek a while back, and and in Star Trek, you have this classic two sides of Spock and Spock and Kirk and Bones and this whole thing about what is it that brings out great leadership? What What is it that brings out the best in man? And... My gosh, as we look at uh, social media today, <laughs> ruling illogically seems to be the order of the day because rationality just doesn't seem to cut it. No, no, it's true. So Stephen's doing a great job in having this philosophical conversation with Evans. He's giving us some nice philosophical brain bait, <laughs> but he's also doing a great job positioning himself with Evans and also with the other Americans aboard ship as somebody who's potentially an ally of theirs, somebody at least who's potentially not an enemy. Yeah. And, you know, by the time we get into the, uh, I think they have a chess game together and we can say that Evans has heard and seen enough of Stephen that he's ready and willing to offer help and advice for now and for when they finally come ashore in Boston. Yeah, which is which is really important because they're, they're really getting close to Boston. It's getting really cold. And, you know, we get these stories about Aubrey who – Jack is thinking, okay, the closer we get to Boston, the closer we get to British men of war who are blockading the harbor there. And so he wants to be on deck all the time, watching for that sail on the horizon, hopefully for his rescue. 
And O'Brien tells us how he's sick and gray and weak. He repelled any attempt at help or kindness, any supporting arm with a curtness that soon did away with any sympathy. And they keep saying that that actually there wasn't all that much sympathy in a way because he was already known to have commanded the leopard. And as Jack turns them off, yeah. thank goodness, Stephen is drawing them in. Jack gets pneumonia right as they're coming in to Boston here. And, and they need some help. They definitely need some help. They do. And who's going to organize it but Stephen, of course. He's positioned himself as an ally with the Americans. He's got sources of advice on shore. And Evans gives him this great steer that says there's uh, a, not a hospital, uh, a facility where they can arrange for Jack to be looked after. And uh, Evans says, my brother-in-law, Otis P. Choate, who is also a medical man, has a small private establishment that he calls the Asclepia in a dry, healthy location near Beacon Hill. And he goes on to say that it's free of charge. It's run by a man who's opposed to war and slavery and is staffed by Irish papist nurses. <laughs> and <laughs> Stephen, taking this remark seriously, says, I honor your candor, but... And then Jack, who perhaps perhaps lucidly, perhaps not, says, oh, never mind Maturin. He's an Irish papist himself, drunk as a lord every morning by nine o'clock and never a shoe to his name. <gasps> Is that so, sir? Said Mr. Evans. And we're having a little bit of a joke here that I think Americans sometimes don't get humor the first time. <laughs> Is that so, sir? Mr. Whispered Mr. Evans. I had no idea. Oh, I was not aware. Your sobriety. Sir. Oh, but apologies can only make the blunder worse. I beg you will forgive me. <laughs> so Stephen's arranging for Jack to be taken care of by Irish papist nuns in what you can charitably call a lunatic asylum. And he's going to encounter some odd characters there, isn't he, Mike? Well, well, he is. He is. You know, you have all these folks who think they are somewhere else, or think they are somebody else. You know, the you know the uh, you know, the king of this, the queen of that, the, all these people. And and I remember, you know, I spent a lot of time on Lock Wards as a psych intern, and and in my studies, I think sometimes to pass the time, it just became fun to do that, to sort of play along. And so I think this didn't surprise me at all. It sounded very familiar because I think on the one hand, it's a little scary. It can be a little scary. On the other hand, when you dip into it and play along, it's 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 a great afternoon. Meaning <laughs> no disrespect. Sorry. Indeed. So we've we've got two different attitudes by our two different heroes here. Jack finds himself in a lunatic asylum encountering the what you encountered, Mike, which is that it might be just as fun and entertaining to play along, but remember this is Jack right? And he's Jack ashore. Yeah. And just because he's sick doesn't mean that he's not going to screw up and be taken advantage of. Oh, no. Right. Meanwhile, Stephen is ashore among potential allies. And Stephen's going to learn there are potentially friendly forces at play in the town. So he's managed to get Stephen moved into Dr. Choate's. He's managed to get the good word from the Commodore and from Evans, who are giving a donation to their expenses, who use the, we, we hear this phrase, we are all subject to the fortune of war. And we also discover that Michael Herapath's father is a local, he's a Tory loyalist. He's part of this small core of Tory Federalists united in their dislike of Mr. Madison's war and everything that that means for having their trade interrupted. So Stephen asks after Michael Herapath, who was the companion of Louisa Wogan in the last book, and hears that he's a disappointment to his father, that he's come back from travels, bringing a drabble tale wench from Baltimore, which is Louisa Wogan. Right. Now, 
Evans is a little bit upset when he discovers that Stephen is friendly with Michael. And I think Evans is permanently a little bit anxious about not offending people. And Stephen's very easygoing. He says, ah, where would the conversation be if we weren't allowed to exchange minds freely and abuse our neighbors from time to time? That's right. Stephen's so pleased with Dr. Choates. Jack actually is delighted that his room has a view of the harbor and he has a telescope. And Jack, as I mentioned, is kind of having a great deal of fun playing along with the patients here. He writes to Sophie, he says, we humor one another each playing it being madder than the next. And there there are these certain unspoken rules. And, and he gets interrupted, interrupted by a visitor. And Mike, this brings us to one of the funniest, genuinely, or 100% purely comic passages in Patrick O'Brien, better even than the fart joke in Post Captain. Right. This next passage is worthy of P.G. Woodhouse, I think, in terms of the the, the misunderstanding and the wordplay and the, and the dialogue. It's just hilarious. So, good afternoon, sir, says the first uh, interrogator, the first visitor. I am Jaleel Brenton of the Navy Department. Now, the snag here is that Jack knew of a Jaleel Brenton who was a post-captain in the Royal Navy and had been made famous in England by being made a baronet and hence had this curious name. So Jack goes right into believing that Jaleel Brenton is perhaps not this person's real name. Good afternoon to you, gentlemen. I am John Aubrey, grandson to the Pope of Rome. After a slight pause, Mr. Brenton said, I was not aware that Romanists are allowed in your service, sir. Never you believe it, sir. Why, half the border admiralty is made up of Jesuits, even though it don't do to let it be generally known. Pray take a seat. How's your brother Ned? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I have no brother Ned, sir, said Mr. Brenton crossly. We are come here to ask you questions about the leopard. Ask on, old boy, said Jack. All I know is she can't change her spots. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Tis in the Bible, and you can't say fairer than that. This is... (laughs) This is, you know, Jack thinking that he's got another lunatic across the uh, desk from him, or, or a couple of them here. He goes on, Mr. Breton questions him about firing on an American brig, the Alice B. Sawyer, yeah. while he was captain of the Leopard. Jack says, I confess all. I sifted backstays. I slept out of my ship. I kept false musters. I failed to submit my quarterly returns. I allowed stove casks to be thrown overboard, and I blasted Alice B. Sawyer from the water with both my broadsides treble-shotted. I throw myself upon the mercy of this honorable court. Brenton is pretty taken aback, and he's just making sure that this guy is there writing all of this down. And then he hands Jack some papers. Captain Aubrey, do you recognize these papers? And we get this, of course I do, said Jack in an ordinary voice. This one is my commission and the others, let let me have a look at them. And he recognizes his middling notes. He recognizes some papers that the Admiral Drury had asked him to take home. So now Jack is sort of, I think, kind of half like, what's going on here? The officials are kind of, I think, have gotten a lot of what they want. And then they're interrupted again. Uh, with a knock on the door as a a Mr. Bulwer from the Royal Navy appears. And Jack has the first folks thrown out by another inmate, a next door neighbor of his, who wields a very large knife. Yes, and has a line of spittle at his lips. (laughs) Yeah. So not not probably not endearing himself to them anymore (laughs) with this either. And it's starting to dawn, I think, on Jack that he might have played his hand a little bit badly here. And Stephen observes that Jack is a little bit low in his spirits. And Jack later on tells Stephen that, you know, 
He's feeling down because Bulwer has told him that there's been another defeat. The USS Hornet sunk Peacock in 14 minutes. There's a celebration going on all around the hospital in the harbour at these great victories. The five surviving officers of the Peacock have written a letter thanking Captain Lawrence of the Hornet for the way they were treated, which is gracious, but it's a humiliation. Right. And Jack also learns from Bulwer that Mr. Brenton is really with the US Navy Department and handles prisoner exchange. And Jack recalls a case in which the Americans have falsely accused a British captain of killing an American. It was much later conclusively proved that he didn't hit the ship when he fired. So Jack's now thinking about these cases that maybe Jack himself is going to be falsely accused and he realized that his behavior has has done some harm to the case. Stephen says, you know, such inveterate malignant brother, I find it hard to credit I do not believe you made any American ship stop this last voyage at all. And Jack is saying, well, these guys, you know, they put these ideas in your mind, but this could explain why there's been a delay. Everybody else that was kind of brought in has already been exchanged. Jack's there and Jack is thinking, you know, they really hate the very name of the leopard and they've associated me with that. He says, I'm connected with her, and any stick will do to hang a wicked dog. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like an Aubreyism in a minor key. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. While Jack thinks that, you know, that all the American sailors they've met are great seamen, brave fellows, very generous, and he would never suspect them of anything like this, he says, but these civilians, these officials. And then as Jack and Stephen are sitting there, they hear Louisa Wogan's laugh, and they both start to smile involuntarily. Wow. <laughs> Mike, that's a great reach back, isn't it? We've got to the, the same event, the Louisa Wogan laugh, that closed the previous book. We've got to the same event, except last time we heard it, Louisa Wogan was slipping away to pursue her intelligence career, slipping away from HMS Leopard and Desolation Island. And now we're here in the US, in Boston, on Louisa Wogan's home territory. And I wonder what it presages that Louisa Wogan's paying a call on Captain Jack Aubrey. Louisa Wogan, who Stephen had slipped the poison pill intelligence document, which has resulted in the death and discrediting of so many agents. Here she's back. Jack's exchange has been delayed. They're bringing actions against him. Yeah. Is Stephen now going to be exposed as a spy here in American territory? And hold on a second. Louisa Wogan's got connections to Diana Villiers. Oh, right. And we believe she's in town as well. Oh, my. What is going to happen? I think we should find out next time. Mike, what, what would you say to maybe just a little more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all of my heart. This, this has got to be a good omen, right? <laughs>